Hi everyone. We've just set out on our teaching series through the book of Revelation and today is week three. And in our first two weeks together, I tried to set the stage for why we're going through this book at the current moment. And if your association with the book of Revelation was either, you know, one awkward, strange, confusing, so you just kind of give up, or two, it was kind of fear and anxiety inducing and you just, you're tempted to shut it down, then what I communicated is that I hope this series is going to be actually very, very uh, fresh and helpful for you, regardless of where you find yourself spiritually. This book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which is helpful for two broad categories of people. Number one, it's very, very helpful for those who are committed Christians because it reveals a bigger and better and more high resolution picture of who Jesus is currently. And when we have that high, resolu high resolution picture at the forefront of our minds and hearts, that will, it will absolutely change how you understand yourself, how you understand your faith and your purpose as a follower of Jesus. But the book of Revelation is also really helpful for those who are not committed Christians. Maybe you consider yourself spiritual but not religious or even skeptical or uh, maybe kind of spiritually open-minded. This book is important for you to study because in it, Jesus makes claims about himself that go so far beyond um, I'm just a wise spiritual guru or I'm a good spiritual teacher that it really does push you towards a, an inevitable fork in the road that really only lays out one of two directions. Either you have to reject all of it and say this whole Jesus thing is rubbish, rubbish, including his own self-understanding, or Jesus really is in a category all his own. And I need to respond by putting my entire life and future in his hands. Now, you may have not reached that fork in the road yet. And if you haven't, Glad you're listening. Uh, not many people go out of their way to seriously grapple with the truth of who Jesus is beyond maybe a quick Google search. And that obviously can lead you down some astoundingly wild um, divergent pathways. Um, and fewer people even still uh, will go out of their way to move through one of the strangest mystifying books in the Bible. And that is the one that we're studying, Revelation. So kudos to you for kind of doubling down on your interest and being committed to move through this book. In week one, we talked about the fact that the current situation makes the study of this book very, very timely and powerful. That in times of crisis or uncertainty, confusion, fear, maybe even hopelessness, there might not be a more important book for you to study and to understand than Revelation. Because when it's content, and its message takes hold of you, it will fill you not with fear, but with a holy boldness and confidence to face your present reality and the future with confident hope. Right? In verse 1, this is revealed to be a revelation or apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. It means an unveiling, um, a disclosing of something which was normally hidden. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him 
to show his servants what must soon take place. And then in verse 3, the book says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Written in it. So this is a book that offers a tremendous blessing to anybody who reads and keeps it, meaning those who respond to its message. This book will ground you in a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what his purposes are for and in the world right now. And it will be a blessing to you as you read it and ponder it and respond to it. But we also talked about some things to keep in mind as we make our way through Revelation. One is, especially when we move into the sections that are more symbolic and that seem a little bit obtuse, to read Revelation with humility, recognizing, as we'll discover, that there are there have been many different ways that Christians have tried to understand and apply these texts. And the second thing that I encourage us to um keep in mind as we move through Revelation is that we want to try and discover the message and how it would have been understood to its original readers before we try and jump into discovering what it means for us today. It's not a bad thing to say, how does the Bible apply to my life today? That's a very, very important step of hermeneutics, meaning interpretation. That's an important interpretational step, but it can't drive our study of the text. Because if we don't carefully study the text, have at least a basic understanding of the context of when this book was written, to whom, why, how would they have read it and responded to it, then it will become very easy to interpret Revelation eisegetically. What do I mean by eisegetically? That's likely an unfamiliar term to you. You may be more familiar with the term exegesis. Well, exegesis and eisegesis are two sort of polarities on uh, two different conflicting approaches to how to engage and study the Bible. So when you hear someone talk about uh, eisegesis or studying the text exegetically, it means that you're trying to engage the text based on careful objective analysis of what the text is communicating itself. So the word exegesis literally means to lead out of, which, which means we come to the scriptures, we study what they are, and then we allow our conclusions to arrive out of the actual text and its context. The opposite approach to interpreting scripture is eisegesis, which is when the interpretation of a passage is based primarily on a subjective, non-analytical reading of the text. And so the word eisegesis literally mean, means to lead into something. And this is where we read the Bible and interpret it through the injection of our own ideas, our own presuppositions onto the text, kind of reading into the text what we hope that it means or what we would like it to mean while ignoring the overall context of maybe the letter or uh, the gospel account. So a really classic example of the difference between eisegesis and exegesis is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This passage is often slapped on a poster with some 
evocative athletic image, a runner, a boxer. And the inference is that I can do all athletic endeavors through Christ who gives me strength, right? So what we're doing is instead of looking at the particular passage in the context of what the overall passage in Philippians 4 is talking about, we say, I'm an athlete. Here's a line of scripture that promises that I, as a Christian athlete, can do all athletic endeavors. I can ascend to the greatest heights of athleticism and and um, champion caliber performance through Jesus, who gives me strength. That's an example of reading a passage eisegetically, right? I've started with my, what I want the passage to say, and I've kind of imposed my presuppositions and my uh, ego, my desires onto the passage. And this has led to many disappointed Christian athletes who indeed found out that you cannot do all athletic endeavors and reach the highest heights of athletic performance um, in Jesus who gives you the strength to do that. Because that is not what the passage is actually promising. When you understand and engage the passage exegetically, so starting with the passage to draw out from the passage its truth, you arrive at a very, very different understanding of what this promise is, right? Paul in verse 11 says, listen, he's writing to the Philippians. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm placed. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have a lot. Uh, I, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I have a lot or I have a, or I have a little. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Right? Paul is saying, I can do all things. What is the all things? It's referring to I can learn to live with contentment irrespective of my um, material, my current level of material prosperity. I can love and live for Jesus. I can serve Jesus um, independent of what my paycheck says, independent of whether or not I'm going through a particularly easy season of life or a hard time, and I can have contentment in Christ. That is the power that Jesus gives me to live contentedly in him outside of my material circumstances. So you can see how you can come to two very different conclusions to Philippians 4.13, based on whether you try and bring meaning to the text unconscious, unconsciously, right, eisegetically, or whether or not you start with the text, do some work, and then draw out from it its meaning, and therefore its implications and its true promises to our lives. And that's what we want to do with Revelation. Revelation is a very easy book to read eisegetically where we've heard about all these things about end times and Mark of the Beast and Antichrist and um, Millennial and Rapture. And we have these concepts swirling in our heads and then we can kind of unconsciously and well-intendedly impose them onto the text. But we want to be careful. We, we want to hit the pause button as we move through this book and make sure that as we come to each passage, we're understanding how it would have been received, what the context of the instruction or the vision is, so that we can... Um, judge whether or not our interpretation is actually exegetically founded. Does it actually emerge from the text? Or are we just trying to fit the text around our preconceived notions of what we think is true or what we'd like to be true? 
Okay. I know that was a big lead in, but I've got to kind of keep layering these things as we go through Revelation because it's a book that that has been misinterpreted and misapplied through a lot of uh, different Christian traditions and through much of Christian history. So we want to make sure we're handling uh, this particular apocalypse well and faithfully. So in the first chapter, um, after receiving this powerful, apocalyptic, faith-fueling vision of the risen and ascended Jesus, while he's on, while he's exiled to Patmos, uh, John is given these directives to write to the angel of the seven churches. The first of these letters is sent to the church in Ephesus. Now, last year we completed a study through the book of Ephesians, but here's some very, very high level context for those of you who either weren't around, excuse me, weren't around for that series or for those whose memory is a little dusty. Ephesians is a major civic center in the Roman Empire. It's a huge city by ancient standards. Likely around 250,000 people live there. It's a mega city in a first century context. It's also the center of the imperial cult, which is how uh, which is a cult that was devoted to the worship and acknowledgement that Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire, was both Lord and Savior, that Caesar was curious, that he, along with the other gods that you were free to worship, you, you, you had to acknowledge that Caesar was a divine being as well. And you had to give um, uh, sacrifices uh, to publicly acknowledge this fact. So this imperial cult uh, was centered in Ephesus, but also so was one of the ancient uh, wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on whether you're a Greek or um, uh, whether your religious um, background was Greek or Roman. It was named differently for those two uh, populations. Artemis and Diana was a the Temple of Diana was massive. It was a center of tremendous economic, it was kind of an economic powerhouse for uh, Ephesians. Paul gets into trouble because he runs interference with um, the idol makers in Ephesus. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Um, the church in Ephesus is established in the early 60s, so about th three decades after Jesus is, um, is crucified and then uh, resurrects. This letter is being given to the church in Ephesus in the 90s, so about another 30 years has transpired. So this is about um, two generations of Christians who have lived under the shadow of all kinds of social and political and physical persecution in Ephesus because there was, under certain Roman leaders, tremendous consequences to not bowing the knee and acknowledging that Caesar is Lord. And the proclamation that Jesus is Lord wasn't understood to be simply a um, an acknowledgement that I'm spiritually committed to Jesus. It was a way of saying, I think Jesus runs the world and I'm going to give my full allegiance to him. And therefore, I will not give my full allegiance to Caesar. Caesar. I will honor Caesar up into a point, but I will not worship or acknowledge him as God. Christians who took that faithful line faced persecution, imprisonment, death, torture, economic, social marginalization. And this has been going on for decades now. Timothy was established by Paul as a pastor in Ephesus after Timothy's killed, John takes over for him. 
And uh, according to early church records, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of this church because if you remember, Jesus on the cross tells John to take care of his mother after he dies. And so uh, this was the church that Mary was a part of. So for 30 years, this group of Christians have been learning how to live as uh, Jesus followers in the shadow of both an empire that consistently breaks out in persecution against them. And on the other hand, in the shadow of this very hedonistic culture that is steeped with um, all kinds of sexual immorality, impurity, um, idol worship, paganism, tremendous uh, material prosperity, and all of the kind of the greed and the avarice that comes with that. So th this was not an easy place to live as a follower of Jesus. And at almost every turn, you would have had to make very difficult choices every day about how you spend your time and your energy and your money as a disciple of Jesus. Ephesus was not a place that you could just kind of go with the flow and it would carry you in kind of a broadly God-fearing direction. The society around you, the political structure around you, the zeitgeist of where you were living, if you just surrendered into it, was going to carry you downstream away from God and God's truth and God's purposes for you and for his church. So what is Jesus's message to this group of Christians after about three decades living and serving Jesus in this context as his church? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. This is Jesus speaking in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. And I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So Jesus starts his message to the Ephesians with some really strong encouragements and commendations. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't tolerate evildoers. You test those who claim to be apostles, but are actually false teachers and false leaders. I see that you've endured patiently, that you're bearing up in your suffering um, for the sake of my name, and that you haven't grown weary. I mean, this is high praise, right? They're, they're busy with ministry to each other and to those around them. In the face of trials and persecutions, they're enduring, right? They're not giving up. They're not throwing in the towel just because the heat gets raised on them. They are able to root out false teachers who would want to lead them down a different path or who are only self-serving in their interests. They're more than willing to confront them and get rid of them. 
They've stuck to their guns. They aren't, they aren't giving in either out of fear or faithlessness to the civic or the cultural powers around them. I mean, it's really, really awesome. They're known for strong service and strong teaching. Jesus even says they don't put up with the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And although there is some dispute about exactly who this um, kind of cult following or what the basis of this cult following was, it's likely something to do with a negotiated compromise with the fact that you can follow Jesus and still participate in temple idolatry. And like, we are free in Christ to sin. Jesus has saved us from the curse of the law and therefore we're saved from moral demands and our sins are forgiven, right? So if we're forgiven in Christ, we can now love Jesus with our hearts, but we can also obey um, the impulses of our body. And because our, our sin is covered. So it was that kind of thinking where, where you could kind of live with one foot in a ungodly, pagan, disobedient lifestyle, but also claim to love and follow Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you have this in your favor. You reject that teaching. You are trying to devote yourselves fully to me and are thinking through what that means. But in verse four, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And that word abandon means to give up or to forsake or just to quit. You've just simply stopped. Stopped what? You've stopped the proto-love. Some translations will say your first love. But the word first there means proto. It's from the word prototype. It's He says, there was this prototypical love that gets infused in the heart of a new believer. It's so pure. It's so passionate. And you've set that aside. Right? Jesus is confronting a cooling of their love. And, and by love, I mean spiritual passion, enthusiasm, zeal, but there was something deeply sentimental about it. It wasn't just sentimentalism, but it was a it was a fire of the heart. And Jesus was saying, like a spouse who remains dutiful to their spouse, but whose actions are kind of mechanical and have become rote, he says, I see something in your heart as a church. Everyone's got this Christian lifestyle down, which is really good. You're serving, you're influential, you're not caving into the um, pattern, worldly patterns around you. But Jesus says that lifestyle, your expression, it's not coming from a place of deep love, of wholehearted, passionate devotion. I think of different churches that I've visited or been a part of. And when I think of a church like Ephesians, like, or the, the church in Ephesus, I, you know, maybe this is a bit of a caricature, but I, I think of the stereotype of maybe a cold, angry, fundamentalistic church where they are serious about their Bible and they're serious about worship and they're serious about living faithfully before God. But I don't know if you've ever been a part of a community, a faith community that skews in a more fundamentalistic direction, but it can, it can often morph into something very, very cold and very angry and very repressed. And, you know, one of the values that we have as a covenant church is that we want to be doctrinal without being doctrinaire because early covenant believers 
saw the kind of cold, angry fundamentalism that could take, um, that could grip a community that was definitely devoted to Jesus, but had allowed their soft hearted love for each other and for God to cool. And they say, we don't want to become that. That's not what we think is the vision for the church. So we want to hold on to doctrine. We want to uphold um, good teaching, but we want to be careful that a cold, lifeless, loveless spirit doesn't take hold of us. Now, when you think about that sort of cold, lifeless, but dutiful and even faithful expression of life, you know, for those of us who are in romantic relationships, we know how this can happen, right? Familiarity doesn't always breed contempt, but over time it can breed a bit of ambivalence, right? We can begin taking our spouse for granted and in the routine of day-to-day life can sort of slowly carry us towards disinterest if we're not careful. It's, it's really easy actually to forget how special and precious your spouse is. And what's interesting here is that while many of us, when we read this passage, assume that the Ephesians forsaking of their first love refers to their first love towards Jesus, that actually isn't made explicit in the text. I think it's a totally viable conclusion, but many commentators, in fact, the majority of evangelical commentators will say that the forsaking of the first love applies just as much to the church's forsaking of their love towards one another. And so I think Jesus's command here should be read and understood and received as a both and. We can see how our passionate pursuit of Jesus can wane over time, but just as clearly we can observe how being part of a church can slowly become kind of a burden and maybe with um, maybe in dealing with some of the imperfections and idiosyncrasies and immaturity of others around us, we maybe become tempted to think, ah, it's just kind of more trouble than it's worth. I'll do, I'll do this Jesus thing on my own. It's very easy, both in our relationship with God and with each other, to drift into a mechanical going through the motions Christian expression. Maybe we don't even abandon church. Maybe we still show up. We're still involved. Maybe we still serve. But we've quit. We've forsaken the impulse to be a part of the church from a place of passionate devotion to one another. That's actually a big theme in the first letter to Ephesians. And so for each of us who are listening to this, who are trying to hear this message and to receive how it would have been received to that early group of Christians, which of these proto-loves do you and I need to admit that we've forsaken, either through intentional drift or just a slow releasing of priority and passion? See, what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't just want a functional church who's operating at a high capacity when the operation of that body is without love. Jesus is not interested and is not pleased with a church who is serious about living into Jesus's mission for it when that mission 
isn't done in and through and for love. Right? There's a really clear echo back here to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, he's coaching them as a church, and he says, listen, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I could fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I had faith that was so powerful it could actually move mountains, but if I didn't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor, and if I give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but if I don't do it from love, I gain nothing. Jesus isn't pleased. He, he's not even satisfied when our service for him and for each other is mechanically faithful, but devoid of love. That's not his vision for his people. That's not what Jesus wants for his church. His desire is that we would be enthused, we would be inspirited, that we would be animated and possessed by a passionate devotion to him and to each other. And so his message to them is his message to those of us who have forsaken our first love for him or his people. And he says, remember, repent, and then do. In verse 5, he says, remember then from what you have fallen. He says, consider the gap between where you were and where you're currently at. And he says, repent. And repent is a word that's interesting because it literally simply means change direction, turn around. You're going down one path. You realize it's the wrong way. So you turn around and go down the right one. You go down God's way. But repentance is always used in connection to something sinful. You're going down a sinful path, not merely a wrong turn. You're going down the wrong way, turn around, get off that path and get onto the right path, which means this state of being mechanically faithful to each other and going through the motions in our relationship with God and having people on the outside look at our lives and say, well, that's a pretty solid church. Like they serve and they're doctrinally pretty solid and they uh, run some good ministries. Jesus says, if you have all that, but it's not animated by love, it's actually something you need to repent of. It's in the category of sinful. It misses the mark so much for what I want you to be and to do as the church that you need to, uh, there has to be a real intervention. It's a fall, right? He uses the word, repent then from what you have fallen, right? This isn't simply, you know, kind of just cooling the jets and kind of becoming like a ho-hum Christian isn't simply an outworking of an inevitable stage of spiritual life. You get to be in the church for a while, you walk with Christ for a while, and then you kind of like, I don't know, like a, like a spouse that kind of gets ambivalent and bored with um, the person they're married to. You're kind of like, oh, this is just the way it is. Jesus says, nope. That kind of attitude is sinful. That's not what I want. He calls them to repent, to change direction. How do you do that? He says, start doing the works you did at first. And if not, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's a condition here. Jesus is saying, I love you. But if you don't start doing the things that you did at first towards each other and towards me, I'm going to come and remove 
your lampstand from its place. Jesus says, start repeating the patterns and the habits, the practices, the gestures that you did when your life with me and with each other was marked by passionate devotion. He doesn't necessarily say, start feeling the same way. He says, start doing the things that you were doing at first, when you were infatuated with me, when your imagination was lit on fire with ways that you could love and serve and encourage each other. Start doing those things again. And he notes that if they don't, there are going to be real consequences. He says, I will actually remove the lampstand from its place. And if you remember that the lampstand is that which brings light, it's a symbol for the church and for the witness of a church in a particular area. I mean, wow, we got to hear this. This is, this is jugular. Jesus would rather have no church in Ephesus than a loveless but dutiful church in Ephesus. Hear that again. Jesus would rather have there be no church in Ephesus. He'd rather shut it down if all it's going to be is a loveless but dutiful expression of Christianity. I want you to hear this morning, Jesus loves you very, very much. He is passionately committed to you. But if you are a Christian, you also need to hear that Jesus does not tolerate cold, lifeless, mechanical Christianity, regardless of how behaviorally faithful that outworking is. Now, I understand there are Many, many factors. We could fill another sermon. We could fill another sermon series with all the factors that move us down a path or into a path, or even sometimes it feels like propel us down a path where we forsake our first love across the relationships in our lives. I don't want to suggest that cultivating and keeping that first love passion towards God and other people is easy or that it's effortless. It's not. And I totally get that. But so does Jesus. And he still expects us to tell. So he still expects us to reject a life of loveless devotion in his name. He still confronts that as anything but genuine and anything but a spirit-filled Christian expression of faithfulness. And that means if you or I are listening and you find yourself in that place where you've forsaken your first love towards God and or his people, let's invite Jesus to help us remember when our hearts really burned with passion for him and each other's well-being and spiritual vibrancy. And let's invite Jesus to show us the specific things to our life, the specific patterns of thought, word, or deed that we need to change direction in or from because they're leading us away from his vision for us as believers. And let's invite Jesus to remind us of the things we did at first in our relationship with him or maybe towards a spouse, towards brothers and sisters in the church, towards our children. And let's recommit ourselves to living these things out so that we don't end up being a church without light or without purpose. We don't want to end up being a church 
that despite being tremendously influential and exerting great energy and right effort, ends up only being a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may Jesus reveal how far you've fallen if your love for him or his people has waned. And may you change your direction and distance yourself as far as possible from mechanical, loveless Christianity. And may you do the things you did at first towards God and each other. And may God restore that prototypical love, that first passionate devotion across all the dimensions of your Christian walk. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. God bless.